0: If you'll take your Bibles now and turn to the book of Psalms, Psalm 139. Psalm 139. It's interesting as we've been going through the book of Jonah the past few weeks, and uh, last week we learned how, how God is sovereign in all things. That even referring to the tornado outbreak in that sermon last week of the previous week, um, that this week we would have such a providential experience as wildfires and firestorms all around us. And every time something like this happens, it really reminds me of two things. It reminds me, number one, of the Day of Judgment. Anytime there's complete devastation from something, whether it's a tornado, Hurricane Katrina, whatever, or wildfires, that that's just a tiny microcosm of what the day of judgment will be like when Jesus Christ comes back again, when God pours out his wrath upon the wicked. And so it's a reminder of that, but there's a second thing that it reminds me of, and that is, is that God never leaves us or forsakes us. In the midst of discouragement, in the midst of loss, in the midst of trial, that he is with us. That he knows what we're going through. This idea of comfort is is something that is is taught throughout the word of God. And I think in Psalm 139, the psalmist is coming to the conclusion that, Lord, you know everything about me. You, 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 You know me inside and out. You know a word before it's on my tongue. And and you're you're everywhere present. There's nowhere I can go. I can't be in any situation where you are not with me. And this again causes us to to trust that God is sovereign and that He has a special love and care for His blood-bought children. The fires confronted us with how quickly our lives can change. First on Tuesday, the Bernardo fire, ravishing just just. Ignited so quickly, caught everybody by surprise. It's very rare. In fact, I can't remember ever in the month of May that there would be wildfires like this, and for that matter, the Santa Ana winds that we had. But then on Wednesday, as the winds intensified with wind gusts up to 75 to 80 miles per hour, humidities as low as 1%, and temperatures in the three digits and the low 100s, it was a recipe. For disaster. And much like in a war zone where you don't know where the next bomb is going to come in and to land and to go off, it was fires popping up approximately every hour around the county, primarily in North County this time, but there were some in East County. Nine different fires in one day popping up. Some of these probably uh, ignited, of the origin of suspicious. Uh, origin, uh, but that's yet to be discovered. The one that affected us closest was what was called the San Marcos fire and then the Cocoa fire, of which we breathed in much smoke and, and dusted off much ash. But, you know, the, throughout these fires, 40 homes devastated and destroyed, uh, tens of millions of dollars of resources going forth to fight these fires. 2,600 firefighters on the ground, not counting all the helicopters and tankers and all of that. But all of this stuff brings to remembrance how quickly our lives can change. People are told to leave the base and to go home up on Camp Pendleton. People are told, don't come to work. It's closed down. Our local gym was closed down. Costco was shutting down. You know, they're just, everything's shutting down. And, and, and you know, it's just, again, it's just a picture, and I think we need to remind ourselves... That there will come a day when the real deal happens when Jesus Christ comes back and we need to be ready for that. It's going to be way more devastating than wildfires. It's going to be way more alarming than stores closing down and having to drive through smoke or for some to grab their belongings and load it into a vehicle and to drive away. It will be the sky rolled back as a scroll when the Lord Jesus comes back. In fact, we read that passage just a moment ago in Second Peter. Did you, did you pay attention to that? Verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a what? A thief. Which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Again, a picture, these things that we have experienced are just little tiny pictures of this great and final judgment at the end. But the second thing that is encouraging, and this is what we're going to take our, the rest of our sermon on, is the great comfort that he is with us. And even in the Peter passage here, in verse 9, the verse right before, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God's mercy is wide. God's mercy is great. We've been learning that in Jonah, haven't we? is the love of God is displayed to wicked Ninevites and to wicked sailors, and and God, as we'll see next week, brings salvation to even these sailors. God's mercy is wide, and warnings like this should awaken not only believers who have fallen into a lethargy, but also those outside the lost who realize that things are really outside of my control. I might have the big 401k. I might have the biggest house and all the nice cards. All that can be consumed in a matter of 15 minutes. It's a picture of how we need to be those who are ready with the gospel, who are ready with the good news to go and to take. And and some Christians were doing this and had personal contact with those that, that suffered loss. It's also interesting how many reporters say you're... Our prayers are with you who are known to be non-Christians or radio hosts and so forth. But as we look at this psalm, and I want you to look at it with me, and and brethren, we're only going to have time to look at the first half of it. I want to bring out some themes here that should comfort us, not only in light of this past week, but in anything that we are going through, any trials or difficulties that we go through. God has a plan He rules all of his creation by his perfect providence, Providence. his providence, And, and, and providence is the unfolding of his decrees, which happened in eternity past. And so when it comes to his children, his special children, he has a special care for them. He doesn't just start the project or wind things up and just let it just kind of go whichever direction. He is fully in control of all things. Psalm 139 is packed full of theology, but the primary uh, theme that comes out is the teaching on God's omniscience. What is that? It's that he knows all things. Another way to put it is that he is all-knowing. And this psalm brings that out very clearly. These are attributes of God that we're considering, and because then he goes on to his omnipresence and then his omnipotence and what is that? That God is everywhere present and that God is all-powerful. So in a sense, what the psalmist does is he sets out that the first six verses, as really there's four six-verse stanzas in this psalm, and the first one sets out the doctrine of the omniscience of God. And then he says, let me prove to you that God, that God really does know all things, and, and, that, and, and let me prove it to you, it's because he's everywhere present, So there's nothing that that he's never taken by surprise, but then he's all-powerful. In fact, he's created us in our mother's womb. Yay, he knew us in our unformed substance. The structure also has the first four verses of each section are descriptive. They introduce the main idea of that section, and then the, the next two verses are more reflective. And so... You've got verses 1 through 4, which sets it out, 5 and 6, that reflect on 1 through 4. Likewise, verses 13 to 16, it sets out the doctrine of God's omnipresence. And then 17 and 18, reflective, and so forth. So let's go ahead and just read the first 12 verses again, and then we will jump into this. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? And where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, and if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness has overwhelmed me, and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as day. Darkness and light are alike to you. Let's pray one more time. Father, we ask that you would give us understanding into this powerful, potent psalm that speaks of your knowledge, your presence, your power. Lord, may we be those that are enraptured, that are amazed by your character, by your strength. Lord, we pray that you would help us to realize who we are, and even the brevity of life, and, and that this life is but a vapor, but that we can take comfort as children of God in you, who never leave us or forsake us, no matter what happens, no matter what difficulty happens, Lord, you are with us. And for those who are outside of Christ, this, these doctrines can be a little troubling. I pray that you would trouble any here that do not know you this day. Lord, that they might turn to you in repentance and faith in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as we think of God's presence everywhere, you know, we teach our children of the catechism questions. Can you see God? What's the answer, kids? Can you see God? No. But what's the answer? No, but he always sees me. Come on, you guys should know this. He always sees me. And so just as a little child can, can go like this, I'm going to hide from you and go like that and think that they're actually really hiding. They're not actually hiding, right? Because we see them, and the same is true with God, that he sees us no matter where we go. Remember Adam and Eve, when they sinned, they thought that they could hide from God, and so they sought to hid them, hide themselves from the Lord. But what folly that was. Yes, the book of Hebrews lays it out very clear, all things are open and laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So as I said, we're just going to look at the first 12 verses under two simple points this morning. First of all, the omniscience of God, verses 1 to 6. He says in verse 1 here that, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. First of all, he's calling out to his covenant God, O oh Lord. Okay, he knows who he is addressing. O oh Lord. And then he says, You have searched me and known me. The word here for search means to search out, to examine, to thoroughly investigate. And in fact, it's ten uses. I think it's ten in the Hebrew. Most of them imply an emphasis on something that would seem impossible. And so the idea that he searches out and and knows him is something that, that the psalmist is bringing up. Now, lest we think that, well, maybe God is lacking or it implies ignorance because he has to search out to know. No, that's not what he's saying at all, right? His knowledge is perfect. He knows all things exhaustively to the fullness of their capacity. There's nothing that is taken by surprise. I'm reading through 1 Samuel right now, and, um, and Hannah's prayer is beautiful in 1 Samuel chapter 2. And listen to what she says. Sounds like a theologian. <laughs> there is no one holy like you, Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides you. There, nor is there any rock like our God. Boast no more very proudly. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and with him actions are weighed. Even Hannah in her prayer, even a time of weakness as she prays, this theological prayer acknowledges that God is a God of knowledge. And that with him all actions are weighed. In fact, just look over at verse 17 and 18. I we're not going to have time to unpack them, but as the psalmist reflects on that third section, look what he says. How precious also your thoughts towards me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. You know, it's easy to read the psalm. I had the psalm memorized at one point. I still have parts memorized it's easy to really meditate and to read, or just to read this song, but when you stop to meditate on what these words are saying, that the thoughts of Almighty God, who rules the universe, holds the universe together, that it is superintending six and a half billion people on the planet all at once, and all the physics and everything else that's going on has even one thought towards me is amazing. <laughs> that has a handful of thoughts towards me is. Wonderful, but the thoughts that he has towards each of you, and especially for you who are his children, outnumber the sand. He's intimately acquainted with you. No matter what you're going through, no matter what pain, no matter what affliction you are going through, he knows exhaustively and comes and comforts. We have knowledge, too, but it's only a partial knowledge, right? That's why we get our educations. That's why we go to university to try to gain some more knowledge or seminary or whatever. But, but our knowledge is very limited and, and very imperfect. But with God, he never discovers anything new. He always has known all things. He cannot learn. He can see the past and the present and the future with equal clarity is an exact knowledge, a precise understanding. Listen to Arthur Pink. He says, God knows everything, everything possible, everything actual, all events, all creatures of the past and present and future. He is perfectly acquainted with every detail in the life of every being in heaven, on earth, and in hell. Nothing escapes his notice. Nothing can be hidden or ever forgotten by him. He never errs, he never changes, and he never overlooks anything. See so what Pink's doing is—he's—he's—he's—he's he's, he's, he's putting brushstrokes, as it were, of the character of God that should cause us to be humbled to the dust. We are so not like God as we learn these things and as we study this book that we see our frailty. We see that we are but creatures. Yea, made in the image of God. Yes and amen. But we're so limited. What is amazing, as I've already alluded to, is that he knows you personally. Look at verses 2 to 4. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. Okay, Now, this is King David. He doesn't say, you know when... We as Israel go into battle and when we return back to... Like it's nothing like that. No, this is very, very personal. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all of my ways. Verse 1 sets forth the theme of God's knowledge and verses 2 to 4 develops that with three aspects. First of all, a perfect knowledge in every posture that we could possibly have, every gesture, every pursuit that we have, he knows perfectly. Secondly, every thought, this includes every emotion, every emotional draw that we would have, every thought of compassion that we would have, every thought that would ever enter our mind, all of that that he knows at all. He knows every thought, every doubt. He knows it all. He's acquainted with all of our ways, intimately acquainted. In fact, the Proverbs speak to this in chapter 5. For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all of his paths. Look up here, kids. Can you imagine if you're hiking with your parents, okay? maybe tomorrow morning? and you saw a man up on a hill looking at you with binoculars, your every move, that's what it is. God watches all of our paths. Proverbs 15, verse 3, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good. So brethren, he knows the standards that you live by. He knows the goals that you might have for your life, for your family, for the training of your children. He knows what company you choose to keep. He knows when you lie down. He knows as, as you're trying to fall asleep, the thoughts that are consuming your mind that might keep you awake. He knows that. He knows if you're devising wickedness, if you're entertaining lustful thoughts in your mind. He knows what is in your heart. He knows everything. In fact, Jesus, he says to the seven churches and elsewhere in Jeremiah, I am he, this is Christ actually, I am he who searches the minds and the hearts, and I give to each one according to your deeds. He knows even what you are going to say before you say it. Verse 4: Even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. Now, you know, I've, I've spoken with some very intelligent people, myself not being that intelligent. And sometimes people can just be super quick, right? With comebacks and words and all of that. Well, God knows all that before it even comes into their mind. And the same is true for you. It's interesting. After being married, next week will be 18 years to my beloved wife. Sometimes the longer you live together and you you know your spouse, and you almost kind of know what they're going to say at certain times, you know? And you you can anticipate it. And, and, and vice versa. But there's a big difference between that knowledge and God's knowledge. God knows with absolute certainty, and there's oftentimes times, oh, you weren't going to say that. Okay, let me just be quiet and listen then. <laughs> or vice versa. And then in verse 5, this is beautiful. Look at the text. You have enclosed me behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. This I just can't help but to picture that, that, that God has this protective, and you know, I use the, I use this term reverently. This is not biblical language, but a protective bubble around His children. There is nothing at all that can happen to His children without God allowing that. He's enclosed us behind and before. We're completely surrounded. God's hand is upon us. It even says later, His right hand, the hand of favor. We are enclosed behind and before. It doesn't matter if we're fleeing from a tornado, fleeing from rapidly spreading flames that are 150 feet into the air and moving at a great, um, great speed, evacuating our houses or whatever. He has enclosed us. And metaphorically, the verb expresses God's full effort to confront the psalmist on every side, leaving no space for escape from his presence. The idea is kind of double. There's a protective layer, but there's also a prohibitive uh, layer to that we would not go astray from him, ultimately. It's interesting because Jonah thought that he could get away from God, right? The prophet. God's man <laughs> forgot these fundamental truths. God's knowledge of you is centered around his fatherly, tender care for you. And he knows your needs and your feelings and your troubles and your difficulties and the, 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 the conflict that you might be experiencing, whether it's a parent-child or between two Uh, spouses or with a workmate or whatever. He knows all of those conflicts. He knows all of the concerns that weigh heavily on your heart when you roll out of bed and get your coffee and open your Bible and you begin to pray. He knows all of those things and he cares. It's one thing to know but to also care. And then in verse 6, David just experiences utter amazement at these truths. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. David's mind is beginning, beginning to melt with thinking of God's vast and complete knowledge. And, and he burst out such knowledge not only surpasses all of my own comprehension, but it even exceeds my imagination that a being could have such knowledge. In Psalm 40, many, O Lord, my God, Are the wonders which you have done and your thoughts towards us, there is none to compare. If I would declare and speak of them, they would be too numerous to count. James Montgomery Boyce said this for the psalmist. God's knowledge is not a threat, but a refuge. You See, for the unbeliever, and I'm going to speak of this in a moment. It's absolutely dreadful. That's why they try to put God out of their minds because they know they don't want to think about having to answer for all of their actions before a holy God. So these theological truths are terrifying to them. But for the believer, it is immensely comfortable. You remember the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul writing chapters 1 through 11, declaring the fallen state of man, how we're justified by faith, how we're sanctified by the Holy Spirit, And then he goes in to talk about God's sovereignty, right, for three chapters. And at the end of chapter 11, before he gets to the practical section of the book, the application, as it were, what does he say in chapter 11 and verse 33? Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Kind of read that, and I think of, you know, I don't think there was electric circuits then, but I think the Apostle Paul experiencing some short-circuiting going on, like, I, this, this is amazing, we can't even fathom it. The knowledge and the wisdom of God. Well, application, briefly, the effects of God's omnipotence. The perfect, perfection of, of God's infinite knowledge can indeed be Disturbing. For some, it might be a facade to put on, you know, it's like outward actions we can control, but, but the idea that somebody can see into your mind and know what you're thinking and know your motives for what you do can be very disturbing. Maybe you might chuckle about the idea of God knowing everything about a coworker or about a family member or something like that, but the same is true of you. A.W. Pink says, divine omniscience fills us with uneasiness. That is, God knowing every single thing about you naturally fills us with uneasiness. An all-knowing God is very terrible and threatening to the unbeliever. This is why so many of the wicked try to keep God out of their minds. Listen to A.W. Tozer from his great book, The Knowledge of the Holy God has never learned from anyone. He cannot learn. God knows instantly and effortlessly all matter and all matters, all minds and every mind. God knows all things perfectly. He knows no thing better than the other thing, but all things equally as well. He is never surprised or amazed. Isn't that amazing? Now, I want you to think with me for a moment, even as a believer Think of somehow, let's say you're moving, okay? We have some that just moved into a house, but if you're moving out of a house, and as you're packing, you discover little cameras that have been placed in every room in your house, watching your kids in all the bathrooms, in the showers, in the kitchen, in the garage, in the backyard, and all these cameras everywhere, and that somebody's been recording everything that's taken place in your home. Every moment, every Every word that was spoken, and the average person speaks five to 10,000 words per day. A family of six. That's a lot of words each day. Two years of data. <laughs> and think how you would feel. Think how compromised you might feel. How, how you, somebody's violated my privacy and that kind of thing. Now, God has absolute rule. There's no violation with God as he looks and as he sees all of this. But that's the idea, or to use a a different analogy, think of the Patriot Act, where now all your phones can be tapped, the government can listen in with no probable cause or whatsoever, and and we're, we're uneasy about that. We want our privacy, and that's why unbelievers squirm when you begin to tell them about a God like this. See, they may think they're going to stand before some deity that is so far and removed from their daily life. Why do you think those that meet next door over there, they have so little hope? There's, that Allah is just so far and removed from them. There's, there's not this personal closeness of a fatherly care. And, and so, but, but with, with those who know that they will stand before this God, the God of the Bible... They know that the list will be pulled out and they will give an account for everything. And if they're outside of Christ, we know where they will be cast into the lake of fire forever. It doesn't end. Emily was asking last night after family worship, is there an end for those who go to hell? Or is, can they graduate from there? And uh, No, nope, it's too late. It's too late if you're sentenced there. And that's why there's urgency today, if you're outside of Christ, to come to Christ by faith and embrace him. Well, we've seen the psalmist set forth the doctrine of the omniscience of God and our natural rea- reaction is to want to escape this all-seeing God because of our sin, us all-knowing uh, presence of God. So David now moves on to proving how God knows all things by setting forth The omnipresence of God. That God is everywhere. That there's nowhere you can escape from. Paul, preaching in Acts 17, speaks, in him we live and we move and we exist. King Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 8, dedicating the temple that had just been built. What does he say in his prayer? But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold heaven, and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house That I have built. See, even Solomon acknowledging, even though the temple was a picture and is a picture of God's presence, you know, temple, the the Garden of Eden is a picture of a temple in the very last three chapters. Uh, By the way, if you get the first three chapters, the last three chapters of the Bible, you get the, the overall message of the Bible. But here is a physical temple, a symbol of God's presence, a place of worship, and Solomon exudes these words of profound truth. That even heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. Well, let's look at it, verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Isn't that amazing? He's asking these questions. Is there anywhere? Is Is it even possible? You know, David's not trying to escape from God, but he's still meditating on this idea. And he reasons that God knows why. He he knows everything because he is everywhere. Jeremiah 23, can a man hide himself in hiding places so that I do not see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth? There's nowhere for a man to hide from God. He asks the question, so where can I go? And in the following verses, he seems to give three main ideas. Up or down, east or west, or even in the darkness. Verse 8. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. Two extremes, the highest and highest of heaven, and then the lowest and lowest of, of the underworld, as it were. Sheol, or hell. There's nowhere to flee from God. God's essential presence is everywhere. Presence present. And then verses 9 and 10, look at it. If I take the wings of the dawn and I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. The dawn is personified as having wings and just think of how when the, it says the dawn and just think of how fast light travels and, and, and all of that and how a morning ray just goes, whew, just flies. But there's nowhere that you can flee from his presence. You can't escape. And this is what makes the story of Jonah just so amazing that, you know, he gets the commission, arise, go and cry out against Nineveh, and he thinks he's going to run from God and goes the opposite way. And as we're studying, that's God will get his man and will intervene to do so. And then in verses 11 and 12 darkness and light are alike to thee. It's an amazing thing here. Surely the darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me will be night, but even the darkness is not dark to you. And the night is as bright as day. Darkness and light are alike to you. And then the next few verses, which we don't have time to look at, but even in the darkness of a mother's womb, He sees and he is working and forming, allowing conception to take place and for a child to grow. He goes on and over in verse 15, My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book they are all written, the days that were ordained for me. Even when it comes to the conception and uh, and forming of a human life, God is intimately acquainted and involved. Nothing can hide you from God. No disguise, no darkness, no shadow. Even the darkness is as light as day. He converts the darkness into noonday brightness, as it were. Not even fierce wildfires. Well, let's just draw a couple of conclusions here. First of all, you are not alone. Whatever problems that you may face today, whatever difficulties, whatever trials you might have. And there's many serious health trials. I just learned of another one, the dear sister today that we will be praying for in our prayer meeting. But we have several that are suffering from diseases that are potentially deadly. We have s- several that are suffering from lack of peace, from conflict in marriages, conflict with relationships, loneliness, financial difficulties, mental trials, you name it. And we go through these valleys and we go through these mountaintops and and, and that's just a part of the Christian life that maybe what we went through five years ago, we're not going through now, but now we're going through something else that is trying and stretching and all of that. And that's where these doctrines should come and to comfort us. See, even sometimes to get a spouse to understand your deepest agonies, your deepest desires, Sometimes there's, like, there's, there's, there's not a complete understanding that only God knows. Or a dear friend, your best friend, that understands everything about you. Sometimes it almost seems like there's something lacking there, but God knows even better than that person. And he is in control. He is ordering all the events of our life for his greater sovereign purpose. A second application is this: these doctrines can be uncomfortable if we are living in habitual sin. Sin and and a holy God does not mix. It causes us to 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 be terrified, and that's why we must hate our sin and flee from it. We must be wise as to what sin is. It's deceptive. It's 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 luring. It's it's alluring, and and it's it's a disease that is very infectious. Keep yourselves pure and undefiled from the world. We are all tempted in many ways to resolve with Joseph. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against my God? Isn't that what, what, what Joseph said? As he had Potiphar starting to take her clothes off and trying to seduce him. How can I do this wickedness and sin against my God? Brethren, we need that resolve when it comes to these things. And then, as we see others, in sin, instead of joining them in their sin, resolve to mourn for them, to pray for them, to intercede for them, to speak to them, to love on them. And remember that there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And the only thing I can allude that Uh, uh, Hebrews 4.13 verse of all things being open and laid bare is that you're on a surgical table that, by the way, is skinnier than this sacred desk. You know, you're barely hanging right on there, right? Because the surgeons need to come around you. You've got super bright lights everywhere and you're stripped down naked and they're shaving and they're doing all this. I mean, that's the idea. All things are open and laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And again, if you're here today and you're outside of Christ, I beg you to come to Christ and trust him. Maybe you're thinking that you've, you, now that you've heard this sermon and heard these truths, that you're too ashamed. How can I go to this God that has all of my wickedness cataloged and knows all of it? May I just encourage you that he is a God of mercy. That the Bible says that he will remember your sins no more? Does that mean that he actually forgets them? No, of course not. It's, it's baby language for us that they're as far as the east is from the west, but we must first see our sin, hate our sin, repent and come to embrace Christ by faith that he really died on the cross for sinners. And you trust in him and you trust in that work that he did on the cross and you will be saved. Every lie, every idle word, every curse, even your sins of omission, everything you have done has been cataloged. This is why we have to look to Christ. If you're outside of Christ, cry out to him. And those of us who are in Christ know that we have a God that is so loving, that cares about every detail of our lives, and may that encourage us and drive us to our knees in intercession to him. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word and thank you for these doctrines of which we have learned your omniscience and how that is proven by your omnipresence and your omnipotence, Lord. Truly, you are a God that deserves worship. You are a God that deserves all of our praise and adoration. God, we thank you so much for how you have tangibly. Demonstrated your love for us by sending Jesus Christ to this sin-filled earth. An earth that has been cursed, a ground that has been cursed, a man that has been cursed so that each one that is born is born in sin. And you had a rescue plan and we thank you for that plan of salvation. Lord, we rejoice in what you have accomplished through your dear son and how he lived a perfect life how he died that brutal, terrible death on the cross and that divine exchange that took place as you poured out your wrath against our sin upon him as a substitute that his righteousness is imputed to us. Lord, may we rejoice in these truths today. For Lord, we can be discouraged if we look even at this past week or this past month or since the new year, we can see how we have failed you from time to time. Lord, we know <coughs> excuse me, that our standing before you is ultimately based on Christ's perfect righteousness. So Lord, keep us to have short accounts with you, and with fellow man, to be quickly confessing and always trusting in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Well, if you'll take your red hymnal that should be next to you, we're going to sing number 691. It is well with my soul and, <clears throat> excuse me, as the musicians are getting situated, I just wanted to share a couple of words about this. Um, this is written by a man by the name of Horatio Spafford. Some of you know this story, but Mr. Spafford had four daughters. He was a businessman in Chicago and was a very successful businessman in Chicago. You can stand. And I think it was the great fires of Chicago that came through, but he suffered great loss. Now, in those days, there was no airplanes, children, so they had to take ships to get across to go to Europe, and he had sent his wife and four beautiful daughters ahead of him as he had to deal with some business matters in Chicago. Well, that ship ultimately sunk, and the four daughters perished, and he received the cable, and I didn't look this up, I'm going off of memory, but something to the effects, I alone and left, that the ship had wrecked and I alone and left, is what the wife had sent to him. So as he took ship to go over there, the captain apparently, at the place where his daughters perished, along with others, said, Mr. Spafford, this is the place where your daughters perished in the sea. And this man penned this amazing, amazing hymn. And as you're singing it, I want you to think about, did he believe in the God of which we've just heard about? Did he believe that God is fully in control, that he knew all things, he's everywhere present? And the answer is yes. So let's sing this together.